Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. And uh, uh, those of you who don't know anything about IWP, uh, we are an independent graduate school of national security. We offer three MAs, uh, several certificates, and we've just now instituted a professional doctorate, which uh, is just kicking off right now. So, uh, you know anybody who's interested in graduate school? Let us know. Turn them, you know, send them, send them on our way. Uh, I'm really excited about this panel. I, uh, as uh, old uh, Paul Harvey used to say, you know, if you watch the Burns Novick, uh, let us say they left some things out. <laughs> and uh, their perspective, that's, that's all well and good, but uh, uh, we pulled together, I think, uh, an extraordinary panel of folks who have written on this, who know it pretty well, and in most respects, their voices were not heard in the, uh, in the, in the Burns Novick, which I think is really too bad. Uh, you more or less get the impression that uh, there's been no new research <laughs> on the war. Uh, in many respects, it, uh, uh, you know, we might as well be 1980s, 1970s, telling the same, uh, the, the same old story. So I think we have a pretty good panel here to talk about these uh, things. Uh, before I get on, I'd like to you know, introduce and uh, just say hi to our founder and uh, president, uh, John Lanchowski. John. And uh, also to Mark Levecki from Providence, uh, who is co-sponsoring this with us. Uh, in many respects, and I'll, he'll talk about this in a second, but uh, this kind of got kicked off uh, uh, when, uh, you know, right after the Burns Delvick, and uh, uh, I was very honored to have been in, included in uh, writing about uh, my problems with, uh, with Burns Delvick. Uh, the, my plan here is to uh, ask each of our panelists to talk for about 17 minutes or so. And in this order, uh, we have uh, Bob Turner, Robert Turner from the University of Virginia at the uh, uh, Center for National Security Law, which he founded. He's going to talk about the legal uh, issues of the, of the war. You know, the old saw that you got that was never really addressed or was, you know, simply wrong is that, well, that whole thing, we had no business in, in, in involving ourselves in that because after all, it was a civil war except for the fact that, you know, in 1959, the Dong Party basically uh, made the decision to uh, begin infiltration and so forth long before the United States had any major role in, in the war. So I'm going to ask Bob to talk about that. Uh, Mark Moyer wrote a path-breaking book on the early years of the war called uh, Triumph, for, Triumph uh, Forsaken. Uh, he put it aside, the second volume, which I know I'll be working on now to, to finish up on that. But, uh, I mean, one of the things that Mark did was that he said, well, you know, there were some decisions made in places other than Washington and Saigon. For instance, uh, Hanoi, and Beijing, and, uh, and also in Moscow. And, you know, his, his argument was to show basically that... Uh, that in many respects, the the best uh, the, the the best witnesses that things were going better than a lot of people thought were the were the communists themselves. What they what they were saying, and then finally, um, Lewis uh, Bob Sorley, who uh, wrote uh, three outstanding biographies on 
individuals, which I'll talk about in a second, but his you know, critical work, uh, I think probably, again, a path-breaking um, book was A Better War, where he talks about the transition from General Westmoreland to Creighton Abrams at uh, as Thomas McVeigh, Commander of U.S. Military Assistant Command Vietnam, and his argument that uh, in many respects, you go after 1969, things were, were much improved. So let me, now having provided the synopsis here, let me uh, go further. Uh, Bob Turner, as I say, co-founded the uh, Center for National Security Law at the University of Virginia. Uh, he chose his side early, <laughs> back uh, from 1965 to 1968. He was the director of research for the National Student Commi uh, Committee for Victory in Vietnam. Uh, he wrote a 450-page uh, undergraduate honors thesis on the war. Uh, he was commissioned uh, into the Army as a second lieutenant, uh, spent tours in, 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 in Vietnam. He gave up a deferment, uh, at least for the time being, to go to Vietnam. Um, and spent some time talking about the, uh, you know, working uh, with regard to the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong. Um, he also is a, um, a fellow at the Stanford University Hoover Institution and uh, wrote the first major English language uh, history of uh, Vietnamese communism. And he's taught on this subject, national security law, for 25 years. As I said, uh, Mark Moyer, by the way, I've known Bob since the 1980s. And, uh, 70s, okay. Is so it that long? Well, but, uh, but I was only five then. <laughs> Uh, Mark Moyer, Dr. Mark Moyer is the director of the project on military and diplomatic history at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And as a matter of fact, he put together a very nice panel uh, over CSIS uh, uh, several months ago. Uh, but he, um, I got to know uh, Mark uh, through Jim Webb when uh, Mark was at Harvard and Jim Webb was on a basically a six-month tour up there and connected us this way and uh, he well, uh, graduated with highest honors from Harvard and then got his PhD from the uh, from Cambridge University. He um, his re most recent book is Oppose Any Foe: The Rise of America's Special Operations Forces. <coughs> Uh, and again, two groundbreaking histories on the Vietnam War. The first one, called Phoenix and the Birds of Prey, Counterinsurgency and Counterterrorism in Vietnam, from the Naval Institute Press in 1997. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, Triumph, Forsaken, the Vietnam War, 1954 to 1965. Uh, he is a... Uh, a uh, member of the Hoover Institution Working Group on the Role of Military History in Contemporary Conflict. He's taught at the Marine Corps University uh, from uh, 2013 to 2015, uh, I'm sorry, 2004 to 2010. And then after that, he taught at uh, the Special Operations University. And uh, as I say, the, the, the book that he wrote is, uh, is uh, path-breaking. Uh, Bob Sorley, a um, uh, graduate of the uh, Military Academy, U.S. Military Academy, also happened to be a, uh, hold a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins. 
So, you know, I guess we call him a Dr. Colonel or Colonel Doctor as we go through here. He uh, has taught a number of places, uh, but again, he's uh, best known for his biographies. The first one, uh, uh, Thunderbolt, General Creighton Abrams in the Army of the Times. Honorable Warrior, General Harold K. Johnson in the Ethics Command in Westmoreland, the general who lost Vietnam. Um, he's received uh, numerous awards for his writing, and as I say, uh, his path-breaking book uh, was, of course, the one on, uh, called uh, A Better War, The Unexamined Victories and Final Tragedies of America's Last Years in Vietnam which was, by the way, nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. He also pulled together all of Abrams, uh, General Abrams' tapes, all of his meetings and so forth, which was the basis for his, uh, his uh, study on this. Uh, what I think you can conclude is that we have a pretty good panel, so hopefully we we'll actually might know a little about Vietnam. Uh, uh, Jim Webb one time said something very interesting. Uh, he wrote a piece back, uh, back in the 1980s for the American Institute uh, American Enterprise Institute, and he talked about the fact that we talk about something called the, the Vietnam generation. He said, no, the, the Vietnam, you know, what we call the Vietnam generation is, a, is an age group. And it's split over issues having to do with, uh, with culture, popular culture. And there's no more important central issue than, than views on Vietnam. And he points out that, you know, the, the, the Vietnam generation is understood to be these guys who oppose it. The war, but he points out that you know, hey, uh, there are a few of us that, you know, we tried to do what our dads did in World War II. You know, his dad was in the Air Force, my dad was in the Marine Corps in World War II, and things like that. And so, when the war rolled around, we thought that's kind of what you're supposed to do. That's what citizens do during time of uh, peace. And so, this idea somehow that there's this unified Vietnam generation in opposition to the war which is really reinforced, I think, by the Bernard Novick uh, piece, I think, is, is nonsense. And I think, uh, you know, if you can find that, uh, that, that essay by, by Jim, it's, 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 worth, uh, it's worth reading. Uh, I'd like to introduce, I would like to uh, invite uh, Mark Levecki from Providence to say a couple of words before we get underway. As I say, the genesis of this was... Uh, your, uh, it was you. It was all you. I'm just going to be, take just a second to say, first of all, thank you to Matt and to Don for hosting all of this. Um, I'm thrilled with the way this has come together. Uh, the genesis is I was simply sitting on the couch with my wife watching the Ken Birds documentary. And while I liked his earlier stuff, especially on baseball, it was naturally a bit apprehensive of how he might treat the Vietnam War. I was lulled into a sense of hopefulness by his commitment, at least his articulated commitment, to simply call balls and strikes. But maybe 30 minutes into the 18-hour series, it became uh, evident that we needed to remember the subjective dimension of umpiring. Um, so I immediately wrote Matt, and I said, Matt, you know, if anybody can give me the contrary voice, it's going to be you. Uh, he agreed to do it. I asked for 800 words. He sent me about 4,000, I think. Uh, we split that into two posts for our Providence website. This is uh, his, his state of origin might confuse you. It's not Providence, Rhode Island, but it's Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. Uh, we split his, uh, his review into two posts, and to prove maybe that the national conversation is not yet concluded, those were our first and our third most read posts ever. Um, I think that's true, though I might be guilty of a slight Ken Burnsism, but I think, it's, I think it's true. Um, 
the, the commentary uh, that followed, uh, both salutary and hostile, uh, suggested that more was to be said. And, and this is the beginning of all of that. So I'm thrilled with this. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for coming. And I look forward to learning. So, Thank you very much. So, Bob, take things out with you, please. All right. I am going to stand up here, uh, not only because of other reasons, but so I can see my slides. I've never seen these before. I've cut scores of slides from uh, presentations I make, and uh, I've got probably enough material for 50 minutes here, so I am going to go very quickly. I'm probably not going to finish, but I am going to give a copy of my set of slides to uh, uh, to the organization so you can post them if anybody is interested. Uh, first thing to say about this film is it is beautifully done. Ken Burns always does beautiful work. The music was, Yo-Yo Ma, you know, he brought in incredible people. Uh, you, you can't complain about the music. Sadly, the content is almost irrelevant to a real understanding of the Vietnam War. I won't speculate about why they gave us such a biased presentation. I have Vietnam veteran friends who think they're just lying lefties. May be true, but they also may have just hooked up with some lying lefties or ignorant people who gave them bad information. I, I, I'm not prepared to say that there was one sense of one one cent of bad will on the part of the people who produced it. Uh, I'll take care of that part. You're going to do that. I've never <laughs> met Burns. I've never met Novick, although she, she emailed me and called me several times. I had sent uh, what I thought was a private email to a dozen or so Vietnam veteran friends saying, this thing's coming. It's going to have an impact. We need to be alert. And uh, apparently it went viral because she wrote me and said, we've gotten a bunch of copies of this, and please don't comment until you've seen it. And I thought that was fair, so I said, okay. And sadly, I've been so busy since I saw it that this is the first time I've had to speak about it. Uh, my first hint that it was a problem was when they kept talking about the Vietnamese and the antecedent was always the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong. You know, I guess they thought they were the American puppets uh, and then the real Vietnamese were on the other side. Uh, and that, that's just not fair. Uh, overwhelmingly, the Vietnamese they interviewed were either uh, North Vietnamese military, uh, South Vietnamese Viet Cong, or South Vietnamese critics of the war. There were very few, there were some, but there were very few who supported the war. The American uh, veterans were overwhelmingly anti-war. Uh, roughly one-third of them have been documented to be members of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Uh, that was an organization that claimed a membership of 25,000 veterans. I don't think they got anywhere near that level, but assuming they got to that level, they would have made up one-hundredth of one percent of all Vietnam veterans, slightly below that. Uh, we know from reliable public opinion polls the attitudes of, of, of veterans. Jimmy Carter asked the Veterans Administration to hire the, the, no, the I don't think he specified Harris, but Harris and Gallup were the two big pollsters of the time, and they did a major poll of more than 2,500 Vietnam veterans in 1980. It was published by uh, the Senate uh, a Veterans Affairs Committee and is available in, in large libraries. And 91% uh, uh, of all the Vietnam veterans they interviewed said they were glad to have served their country. 84% they would be said they would be willing to serve again. Uh, they noted, quote, it is important to understand that the vast majority of these veterans are patriots. They weren't anti-war people, they weren't liberals, they weren't 
you know, they, they were people who loved the country and, and were, felt honored to have been able to serve. Fewer than 20, fewer than 10% of the veterans polled uh, described themselves as anti-war. Now, I like to hope that every person in this room is anti-war in the sense that we prefer peace to war. That's not usually the, you know, the, that, you know, the problem is there are some people who think you should never do anything that would lead to hostilities and so, thus the anti-war position is to allow Hitler to overrun Western Europe, to allow the Japanese to conquer the Far East, and this is not the way to peace. Uh, and uh, but at any you know, so I, I don't think I know a veteran who doesn't prefer peace to war. But uh, if you don't want a big war, you need to be prepared to resist aggression when small wars break out. Now I spent a lot of my early life studying Ho Chi Minh and his associates, Lee Zuan and Tao Trung Chin and, and many others. Uh, I don't think there were many people in the country in the mid '60s doing that. Uh, and uh, you know. The, the, Ho was a brilliant Leninist, and he did a great job of trying to portray himself to Americans as a Jeffersonian Democrat. Uh, that's not what he was. I read all four volumes of his selected works. I read everything I could find he wrote when I was a fellow at the Hoover Institution. I found a lot of old Comintern publications that he had written articles for by various pseudonyms. Uh, as a young man, he was born May 19th. 1790, and he left in, uh, in, uh, in 1911, sorry, 1890, he left in 1911 for France. And at that point, I think he was a patriot, uh, you know, a nationalist, uh, you know, uh, an honorable person. He went to Paris, he lived there for several years. By the time he returned to Vietnam in 1941, he was a dedicated Leninist internationalist serving Moscow and the Communist International. Official North Vietnamese histories of the Communist Party. Note that when Ho Chi Minh was present in Macau on February 3rd, 1930, for the establishment of the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, he was there as the official representative of the Communist International. He spent years traveling around the world on a Soviet passport. The Burns Novick film acknowledges that uh, when Ho did return to Vietnam, he named the mountain where his hideout was located Karl Marx and the stream Lenin. That's not what a nationalist, patriotic Vietnamese who was just trying to get some outside support for his revolution would do. He was a dedicated Leninist. Uh, the, the, the great Vietnam scholar Dr. Benjamin Spock said Ho was sometimes called the George Washington of Vietnam. And he was, certainly by his own agents as propaganda agents, but he had nothing to do with George Washington. <laughs> they quoted a friend of Ho Chi Minh saying he was a great nationalist and patriot. That, that led me, maybe I'm being unfair, but it led me to think if they were doing a documentary in World War II if they would quote a friend of Adolf Hitler's to tell us about what a nice guy he was. It just, uh, uh, anyway, this is a photo of, Ho Chi, of Wen Lai Kwok, uh, also known as Ho Chi Minh, in December of 1920, voting and speaking in favor of the French Socialist Party joining the Communist International, leaving the Second International and joining the Third International. Uh, this fact, his role as a co-founder of the French Communist Party, is affirmed by numerous biographies published in Hanoi. It's also documented in the first chapter of my 1975 uh, book, Vietnamese Communism. 
This is a quote from Ho on his, uh, in his selected works on his conversion to Leninism. Somebody gave him a, a copy of Lenin's thesis on the national and colonial questions. He read it and it was like a religious experience, you know, and he then became a Leninist. Uh, there's a photo of Ho and others in, uh, in the early 1920s in the Soviet Union. Uh, my old Hoover Institution colleague, Bert Wolf, who had been a founder of the American Communist Party, traveled around the USSR with Ho Chi Minh in the early 1920s, and he said, Bob, Ho was not a nationalist. He was a dedicated, hardline, internationalist Leninist, uh, not just somebody trying to get aid in defending his, uh, uh, his, uh, his group. Anyway, uh, like a good Leninist, he tried to conceal his common turn background. He reached out for American aid, and yes, he did quote Thomas Jefferson in his Declaration of Independence. But he was not a Jeffersonian. It was a ruse, and it worked very well. He conned the OSS operatives who he worked with into believing he really just wanted peace and freedom and human rights and so forth. Nor was he a potential Tito. I addressed that at some length in my book. If you want to raise it in, uh, uh, in Q&A, we can do that, uh, but it's not even close. Now, one of the most useful documents on the Vietnam War are the Pentagon Papers. Uh, I actually did a piece in 1972 that's available on the Internet. Uh, it's called Miss the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers Reconsidered. And I pointed out that virtually every major argument being made by the anti-war movement was refuted in the, in the documents in the Pentagon Papers. Uh, if, if you're interested, email me and I'll be happy to uh, uh, send you a link to it. The Pentagon Papers note, Hope was an old Stalinist, trained in Russia in the early 20s, commenter and colleague of Borodin in Canton, China. Uh, one thing that most people don't know about Ho is he actually invited the French to return to Indochina. After World War II, Indochina was divided uh, with the nationalist Chinese, Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, uh, occupying the north of the 16th parallel and the, uh, uh, the British occupying the south. There were nationalist groups, the VNQDD and, and others, who were very close to the nationalist Chinese. So Ho's first objective, since he wanted a communist revolution, was to get rid of the nationalist Chinese. So he actually formally, he went to Paris and on March 6, 1946, he signed an agreement inviting the French to return to Vietnam. At which point, they could then tell the Chinese to go back to China. This is the Pentagon Papers. On 6 March 46, Ho signed an accord with the French providing for French re-entry into Vietnam for five years, so forth. The accord taxed Ho's popularity to its utmost, and so forth. And what else did the French and the Viet Minh do? The Viet Minh was Ho's communist front group. In mid-June, the Viet Minh, supported by French troops, attacked the Dong Minh and the VNQDD, the, the major nationalist groups, as enemies of the peace because they would not welcome the French colonials back to Vietnam, effectively suppressing organized opposition and ensuring Viet Minh control throughout North Vietnam. Why did we go to war in Vietnam? Was it a mistake having to do with the Gulf of Tonkin? Was it an accident? Was it just stupidity? No. The State Department in February 1965, I think it was, maybe 66, put out a white paper called Aggression from the North. I took part in more than 100 teach-ins, protest panels, conferences about Vietnam from 65 to 68. 
Uh, I heard the same arguments all the time, and everybody, all of the State Department lies when it says it was aggression from a north. The problem is uh, Hanoi has now confirmed the State Department's version. This is one of the classic books against the war, Professors Cain and Lewis. The NLF is not, the National Liberation Front is not Hanoi's creature. Abundant evidence have been available to invalidate any argument that revival of the war in the South was precipitated by aggression from the North. It's a myth. At the Third Party Congress, and by the way, I found the multi-volume set of proceedings of the Third Party Congress in my college library. And all he translated them into English, published them, and sent it to them for free. This wasn't hard to find. And anyway, Lezuan, the first secretary of the party, said at the conference, to ensure the complete success of the revolutionary struggle in South Vietnam, our people there, this is a Communist Party meeting, under the leadership of the Marxist-Leninist Party of the working class, must strive to bring into being a broad national united front. It must carry out its work in a flexible manner to rally all the forces that can be rallied. In other words, don't say we're communists and we're going to take away your land and kill your religion. Say we're for freedom and peace and justice and ending colonial rule and freeing political prisoners and so forth. It's kind of like what the Republicans and Democrats do to us every four years. Whatever you, you know, say whatever you think will get you the most support. This is Lezuan on the left and Ho at the Third Party Congress. And they passed a resolution to ensure the complete success of the revolutionary struggle in South Vietnam. Our people there must bring into being a broad national united front. Three months later, Hanoi announced the National Liberation Front had been established. It was from the beginning a totally controlled subsidiary of North Vietnam. Now, this, this was not easy to figure out, I have to admit. I, mean, you know, I, I was just so much smarter than others. Uh, if you look at the flags of the two organizations, I did, they were really very good at hiding their connections. Uh, May of 1984, Vietnam Courier, one of many propaganda organs coming out of Hanoi, wrote a major article on the May 19, 1959 decision to liberate South Vietnam by force, which at the time was, quote, absolute secret. And if you ask me during the Q&A, I'll tell you the funny story of when I arrived at the embassy one morning to, to, to go to work, the Marine Guard saluted me sharply and then said, Sir, you're in trouble. They found a top secret document out open on your desk. Well, it was a North Vietnamese absolute secret document we were about to release to the press. It was just a galley proof, so they actually took off the handcuffs and they let me stay, but it was so funny anyway. Uh, anyway, th this is not rocket science. After the war, in 2002, the University Press of Kansas published an English translation of a book which in English is called Victory in Vietnam. It is the official party history of the war. And in the foreign, William Diker, a professor who was never supportive of the war, said one of the most pernicious myths about the war that the insurgency movement was autonomous, with limited ties to the North, has been definitively dispelled. This important official party history notes that on May 19, 1959, a decision was made to open the Ho Chi Minh Trail, start sending troops, supplies, weapons into South Vietnam to overthrow its government by military force. That's just one of the pages, and we don't have time to read it, even if you could, but it's there. I documented this in my, uh, both in my undergraduate honor thesis and my 1975 book. This destroyed the international arguments. Indeed, in 2000, we tried to uh, redo the old debates, and we could not find anyone of any statute 
to debate us on either the, the, the war itself, you know, the constitutional issues or the international law issues. Uh, it, you know, it, 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 once Hanoi admitted, yes, we made a decision to overthrow South Vietnam Bay Force and started sending troops into their country and supplies, supplies, by the way, provided by Moscow and Beijing, uh, then it was international aggression and we went to war for the same reason we went to war in Korea. And by the way, for those who tell you, wait a minute, it was only temporarily divided, so it was perfectly all right for North Vietnam to invade South Vietnam. Well, go back to June 25, 1950, when North Korea, also temporarily divided after World War II, invaded South Korea. The UN Security Council denounced it as aggression and authorized a military response to protect South Vietnam. Was it a senseless war for no good reasons? Absolutely not. Lin Bao, the vice chair of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, noted that the war in Vietnam was a testing ground to see if American counter-revolutionary tactics can defeat people's war. A communist victory in Vietnam will lead to a chain reaction as people in other parts of the world will see that what the Vietnamese can do, they can do too. Che Guevara, uh, Castro's top military advisor, we enthusiastically raised the flag of the NLF. It's because the battlefront is most important to the future of all America. Vietnam is the great laboratory of Yankee imperialism. The, vicious, the victorious end of this battle will spell the end of North American imperialism. This was a test case. Had we walked away from Vietnam or been defeated earlier, we would have probably faced a dozen or more Vietnams around the third world and had the choice of either losing or using nukes because we certainly could not have fought a dozen Vietnams. In 64, Thailand and Indonesia were basket cases. By holding off until 75, a lot of things happened. Both countries were much stronger, and China had gone through the great proletarian cultural revolution and was no longer exporting revolution. And we walked away in 64 or 65. There were Chinese agents with money and weapons uh, you know, throughout Southeast Asia and as far away as Mozambique. They would have been encouraged had we been defeated in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, indeed, it would, it, they might well have incentivized the Soviets and Chinese to come together. I could give you some examples of how that was done. It was not a senseless war. Another big mess was it to be that repeated in this documentary. The U.S. blocked free elections to reunify Vietnam because we knew Ho Chi Minh would win. Simply not true. Uh, this is, uh, this is Cain again saying that uh, the U.S. reneged on the position it had taken on free elections and thus war became inevitable. Thus, the reason there was a war in Vietnam is we were afraid to allow democratic elections. Simply not true. All right, this is some of the critics. Uh, at Geneva, both the state of Vietnam, which later became South Vietnam, and the U.S. insisted that any unification elections be held under the supervision of the United Nations to ensure they're conducted fairly. Molotov, the Soviet delegate, and the communist Vietnamese said, no, no, that would be interference in internal affairs. Hanoi had a bigger population, and they insisted we get to count the votes and run the elections. And I would note that Ho never got less than 99.98% of the vote. So the New York Times, just one last, the New York Times, uh, uh, but, but there's, there's some, some, some uh, so, some good quotes in here on this. Uh, the U.S. and the United States, very principled, said, yes, unification elections are fine, only if supervised by the U.N. to make sure they're fair. So I've got, I'm probably halfway through the slides I put together, if you're interested in more, 
take a look at them. They'll be on the website. And, I, and I, I'm just honored to be on this panel with two of the very finest scholars in this area in the world. Thank you. Thanks. I'd like to first thank Institute of World Politics for hosting this event and uh, Mac Owens, Mark uh, Levecki, Leon and class and the others who spent a lot of time getting this event organized. Um, it's also a privilege to be on the stage with my good friends Bob and Bob, Bob Sorling, Bob Turner. Uh, and the remarks we've, we've already heard have covered a few of the points that I was going to make. So I'm going to, I may end a few minutes early so, so that uh, we have more time for Q&A. Uh, Mac mentioned the, uh, the Jim Webb article. Um, I think that it, it, that's something useful, especially for those who didn't live through the Vietnam era, to understand some of the dynamics. And Webb and that, you know, talked about how there was, um, it was really the first time in U.S. history where there was where a lot of people make the argument that actually it, it was a good thing not to go into the military and that this has guided how a lot of people look at the Vietnam War um, that in order to justify not serving in the military uh, it made sense to describe the war as unjust, unnecessary, and unwinnable. And I can't say that I can read the mind of Ken Burns, but if, if you look at how um, how, how the documentary comes out, it certainly seems to support that interpretation. And we do know that Burns was opposed to the war at the time and, and made the decision not to go to, uh, to Vietnam. Now, if you saw, and it's already been mentioned, that Burns kept talking about how this was going to be just calling balls and strikes, that this was a neutral objective production. But if you have much familiarity with the war, you could see pretty quickly that it overwhelmingly sided with the view that the war was unjust, unnecessary, and unwinnable, and omitted information that did not support those points of view. And I think the, the biggest problems we have with, with the documentary are uh, in terms of what is left out. And there's some fa factual inaccuracies, but by far the biggest part um, is what's left out. I, compare it to some extent with our uh, mainstream media today in that respect. Um, so I'm going to touch on just a few of these. Uh, Bob's already mentioned some of these, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to cover a few that he hasn't, didn't hit on. Uh, so in 1954, when the country was divided in two, there was a, an agreement between the French and the Vietnamese communists that there would be an election in 1956 for a unified Vietnam. And the insinuation, as it comes across in the documentary, is that uh, when the South Vietnamese government does not go along with it, that it is uh, going against the will of the Vietnamese people. And what they don't tell you in the documentary is that most of the South Vietnamese and the Americans at that time were convinced that Ho Chi Minh and his communists would have intimidated the population in the northern Vietnam, which they control, into voting uh, for the, uh, unanimously for him, and since the North had a bigger population, it was automatically going to make the country communist. And so um, the South did not go along with it, and the South, by the way, also was not party to that uh, 1954 agreement. Um, the Xiem government, 
which uh, takes control in, in the South in 54, uh, receives a lot of scorn from Burns and, and his co-producer Lynn Novick. Uh, they are intent, as with the traditional anti-war narrative, in showing that this was a bankrupt government. They highlight the Battle of Ab Bak in January of 1963, in which the South Vietnamese forces did not perform very well, and then try to portray that as representative of the ZM era, uh, but when in fact, if you look, uh, almost every other battle in the year before that and the year after that were actually uh, victories for the South Vietnamese uh, government. The, the documentary doesn't talk very much about the strategic rationale for why the United States was there, which was the so-called domino theory. There's a little mention of how this idea that if South Vietnam falls, then you will have other countries in the area falling to communism. It was mentioned at the beginning, and then, and then that sort of the whole region sort of fades from the scene. Uh, in, fa in fact, if you look at what happens, uh, and Bob alluded to this a bit, uh, the most critical country in Southeast Asia from the American perspective at this time was not Vietnam, it was Indonesia. A huge country, massive natural resources, strategically located, and there's an anti-communist uh, coup there in the end of 1965, which I think pretty clearly was the result of intervention, uh, American intervention in Vietnam, but you don't hear anything about that in the, uh, in the Burns production. Uh, if you look in the sections on 1966 and 1967, uh, Burns and Novick cover six battles, and in each of these they go out of their way to show uh, errors that were committed by Americans, American casualties, uh, and you're left with the, with the perception that this was kind of how the war was in 1966 and 67. Well, I happen to have been working on chapters in my book uh, in those periods, uh, and, and those were actually, if you had to, there were hundreds of battles in those years, if you wanted to pick the worst six for the Americans, that's about what you got in this. So they, they completely uh, cherry-picked this, and in fact, most of the battles were overwhelming uh, victories for the United States uh, during that period. Another thing that the series leaves out is the declining support among the population for the Vietnamese communists. And I think uh, you know, the population was never really interested in Marxist-Leninist ideology, but they were the communists were selling them uh, a sort of uh, snake oil and telling them you're going to get to keep your land when you're really not. Uh, but by 1967, as the war is going against, uh, uh, is going against the communists, uh, you see a sharp decline in recruitment of South, South Vietnamese for the communists, uh, and that recruit, pace of recruitment will continue to fall and never really come back. Uh, we also know ultimately about 200,000 of the supposedly die-hard communists will defect to South Vietnam. Uh, narrator also tells us in the documentary that 250,000 South Vietnamese troops were killed during this war, but we never hear why so many people were in fact willing to die for a government that was as bad as the documentary would suggest. Uh, we get Burns and Novick give us lots of information about the Vietnamese, the, the ideology of Ho Chi Minh, uh, but we don't really hear anything about the ideology that caused these South Vietnamese to fight to the death on behalf of their country. In fact, there was strong, growing sense of nationalism within the South Vietnamese. There are if you watch the documentary, there is sort of a sense of impending doom from the very beginning, and the music is very lugubrious and 
you have this sense that the outcome is foreordained, there's nothing you can do about it, um, and this again reinforces the idea that the war was unwinnable, there was just total lost cause. Uh, there is, but in fact, more and more evidence we have that in fact there, the war could have been won and that it was uh, American strategic choices uh, in some respects that account for our inability to take advantage of those. Uh, one of those choices concerned um, where American ground forces went. The American ground forces were limited to South Vietnam. There was a lot of pressure from the military to go into Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. And we've now heard from the North Vietnamese side that uh, General Jacques believed that if the United States had, in fact, expanded the boundaries of the war, the United States could have thwarted Hanoi with about 250,000 troops, which is less than half of what we ultimately deploy. Uh, we also know that Chinese were not interested in getting involved. That was one of the main arguments why the U.S. didn't do this. We thought the Chinese were going to come in as they had in Korea, but in fact we know from the Chinese side that the Chinese wanted nothing to do with the war, another war with the United States. Another uh, catastrophic choice made by the United States was uh, the Kennedy administration's support for a coup in uh, November of 1963 against the government of Nguyen Diem. So we see from the communist side that uh, there are lots of evidence that this coup sabotage what in fact had been an effective war effort in the South. Another ill-fated choice is the decision of the United States Congress to slash aid and prohibit American military actions in South Vietnam after the Paris Peace Accords of 1973. Uh, the Easter Offensive of 1972 had shown that in fact the South Vietnamese Army could fend off the North Vietnamese if they had American aid and air support. We took that away. Um, now, the uh, Burns and Novick did, and certainly in their commentary, made a co very conscious effort to say that they were not going to malign Vietnam veterans as so much of the prior anti-war um, history had done. To some extent, I think they, they, they avoided sort of overt disrespect, but they were, uh, in many respects, I think, still did a disservice to veterans. Uh, there was and Bob already alluded to this, but there, there's over a huge number of anti-war veterans shown in the documentary. There is uh, also, if you notice, the, um, the, the uh, Gold Star mother it happens to be one of the few who was actually opposed to the war. The, the uh, POW happens to be married to one of the only anti-war POW wives. Uh, so clearly there was a, a selective effort, an effort to try to convince you that there was much stronger anti-war sentiment than there was. Uh, you don't hear, you hear very little about the camaraderie, uh, about the uh, pride of American soldiers, um, American troops, uh, and I think this is very much deliberate, part of an attempt to uh, undermine the, the experience of veterans. Uh, the only times we really see this sort of pride or enthusiasm is when they show the North Vietnamese, who probably have less to be enthusiastic about since they lost so many times. Uh, we don't hear anything about the 259 Americans who won the Medal, Congressional Medal of Honor, or tens of thousands who won other awards, or, or many others who, who displayed valor but did not receive an award for it. Um, we are, again, led to believe that Vietnam veterans were really victims of the war, uh, there's not much redeeming about them, and hence again that maybe going to Vietnam was the right thing to do. Uh, 
to the reason I started studying the Vietnam War 25 years ago what, uh, was my belief that the, uh, the anti-war left was unfairly besmirching America's uh, Vietnam veterans. And although Burns and Novick don't besmirch the veterans as flagrantly, I think they're misrepresentations of the war and its warriors have, have reopened old wounds. Uh, and it's not just the, the reputation of Vietnam veterans that it's, that's at stake because how we view the war shapes how we view ourselves as Americans. Uh, you know, Burns and his interviewees go out of their way to claim that Vietnam War debunks the notion of American exceptionalism. And they seem to want us to believe that the United States, which is the f world's first modern democracy and the principal guardian of the world order since 1945, is on moral par with North Vietnam, uh, a dictatorship that waged several brutal wars in the name of Marxism-Leninism and slaughtered tens of thousands of civilians before deciding that Marxism-Leninism actually wasn't such a good idea. Uh, and this you know, aversion to American exceptionalism and patriotism has, uh, I think, pervaded too much of our society since the Vietnam War. Um, for those of us who think that the United States is, in fact, a force for good in the world, who believe that our country is so good that we would, in fact, risk our lives for it, the accurate retelling of the Vietnam War is imperative. And that's why I think it's so important to let the country know just how fallacious the Burns series is. Thank you. so comfortable I was going to do my talk from there but since my colleagues come up here I'll, I'll do the same thing. Really caught my attention Bob when you suggested the possible use of nuclear weapons in the Vietnam War. I damn sure wouldn't want to be the targeting officer for that mission. I, I suggested that? But you said that if we if we didn't do win in this oh, way we might have to use nuclear yeah, weapons. That and, was in other, yeah, other wars. Yeah. yeah well um, General Westmoreland uh, did uh, explore the possibility of using nuclear weapons at case time, and he had a planning group put together for that until some horrified people in Washington found out about it and said, burn all those documents and disestablish that uh, group right now, and I guess he did. From my perspective, the Burns production had one objective, to reinforce the standard anti-war narrative that the Vietnam War was unwinnable, illegal, immoral, and ineptly conducted by the Allies from start to finish. It went about making this case by, contrary to the claims of Burns and his associates, that theirs was a, an historically respectable and unbiased account by skewed and unrepresentative content and commentators, lack of context, and crucial omissions. Some of this you've already heard from my distinguished colleagues. These omissions, I think, are the, the most damaging flaw in the Burns opus. The great heroes of the war, in view of almost all of those who fought there, on our side, that is, were the dust-off pilots and the nurses and the forward observers. And, and we don't see much of them. Instead, we see repeatedly poor Moogie Crocker, who we know right away is destined to get whacked. We see over and over again the clueless General Westmoreland, but learn nothing of his refusal to provide modern weaponry to the South Vietnamese or his disdain for pacification. We see precious little of his able successor, General Abrams. I was given 25 seconds to talk about him 
in episode 7. We see and hear almost nothing of William, William Colby and his brilliant work on pacification, and so on. These are serious failings in a film that builds itself as a landmark documentary event. As most people here know, and some of you may have attended, Burns and his associates had appeared at a large number of preview events. I attended one such session at the museum here in Washington. Amusingly to me, they build it as an influencer event. And I was impressed by their self-regard and self-satisfaction. They apparently now view themselves as the premier historians of the Vietnam War. And they are candid in stating their most basic conclusions. Burns told us, you can find no overtly redeeming qualities of the Vietnam War. I hope I may be forgiven for stating my own conviction that in that he is profoundly wrong, as he was in referring disparagingly to what, and I think Mark mentioned this, what he called Americans' puffed-up sense of exceptionalism. Clearly, Burns does not much like America, an outlook that permeates his work. In that same discussion, he was surprisingly candid in describing his objective in making the Vietnam film and his methods in realizing it. They had not been interested in dry facts, he told us, but in, quote, an emotional reality. And, claiming objectivity, Burns said that in making the film, they had not, as he put it, had their thumb on the scale. But only moments later, he stated his conviction that we need to remind people of the cost of war. I'm hoping that someday there will be a sequel reminding people of the cost of losing a war. As we have heard already, the series opens in, in episode one with my strongest impression, a lot of noise. Helicopters roar around, explosions abound, small arms and artillery provide the prevailing atmosphere. This serves very well to underpin Burns's contention that war is hell, but it does not do a lot to establish Burns and company as the historians they maintain they are. Most historians, at least in my judgment, would have begun a series on the war by providing some context and some background on how and why the war began and how and why the United States became a party to it and what impelled a succession of U.S. administrations to view it as in America's interest to do so. But instead, we got noise. What of the research? We are told the Burns team spent 10 years on this project and that in the course of it they interviewed more than 80 people. I know writers working alone who have interviewed several hundred people for a single book. The Burns team averaged eight interviews a year, an interview every month and a half over the decade. Not impressive, at least to me, certainly not comprehensive. At that same, at that same preview, I met General Merrill McPeak, United States Air Force retired, a former Air Force Chief of Staff. He was giddy with excitement over the role he had played in making the series, describing how he had made repeated trips from his home in Oregon to the Burns studio in New Hampshire to help with the production, and how he had seen the finished product several times and was immensely pleased with it. We, the rank and file of the other preview attendees, had, of course, not yet seen any of the product. When we did, 
we saw that same imbecilic General McPeak <laughs> proclaiming his view that in Vietnam, the United States was fighting on the wrong side. We should, I guess, in his view then, have been helping the communists defeat the South Vietnamese. Later, it is said, McPeak got so much negative feedback that he withdrew the comment, as though such a thing might, in some mystical manner, even be possible. But instead, he is forever on record as having not only lent himself wholeheartedly to the creation of this terribly flawed version of the war, but having gone the last mile in endorsing its anti-war bias. Sorry, General, too late to back out now, too late to rescue even a shred of integrity or reputation. You are a Burns man forever. My email to him was brief. You are, sir, I stated, a fool. End of message. I'm sure his response will be along any day now. Another star performer is the pathetic Mai Elliott, supposedly representing the South Vietnamese outlook, who uttered regarding the fall of Saigon and conquest of South Vietnam by the communists, the single most inane comment in the entire 18 hours. I didn't care which side won, she said, because they could now live normally. Then came the bloodbath. I can talk about that a little later, probably. Nowhere in this uh, 18 hours is it explained that both sides in the war, North Vietnam and South Vietnam, are wholly dependent on outside sources for their means of making war. As we all know, the North obtained its weapons, fuel, and so on from Communist China and the Soviet Union. South Vietnam, of course, obtained like support from the United States, until it did not. Nowhere is it shown how valiantly and effectively the South Vietnamese continued to fight for their freedom, even after the United States had withdrawn all its forces, and even after the Congress of the United States had dishonorably slashed U.S. financial and material assistance to them. While you would never know it, if you relied on Burns for your knowledge of the war, it did not have to end as it did. The Congress of the United States decided that it should, and depriving our ill-fated South Vietnamese allies of the means of continuing to fight while the Communists received greatly increased support from their backers, the Congress made it so. We're all veterans of one kind or another, and, and so I was particularly interested in the veterans who got to speak and, and what the whole program had to say about veterans. Burns is deeply interested in me life and any other instances of misbehavior by American troops, but he has next to nothing to say of the many, many heroic actions by medevac pilots, the ones I've said, nurses, forward observers, the ordinary infantryman or advisor. He's rather focused at great length on Moogie Crocker and his pathetic destiny. The real Vietnam veterans, two-thirds of them volunteers, in dramatic contrast, I might say, to the greatest generation of World War II, two-thirds of whom were draftees, the greatest, the Vietnam, real Vietnam veterans said after the fact, as has been mentioned earlier, that they were overwhelmingly glad they had served 
and, and amazing to me, two-thirds of them, 67%, told those, uh, told those interviewers that they would serve again, get this, even knowing the outcome of the war. Burns could not find time in his allotted 18 hours to mention that outlook. Westmoreland. Burns portrays Westmoreland, whose mindless war of attrition squandered four years of support by the American people, the Congress, and even much of the media, as a hero he never was. The film describes Westmoreland as a decorated hero from World War II. In fact, Westmoreland was a battalion commander in North Africa and Sicily, but a division staff officer through the rest of the war. In three wars, he never received a single decoration for valor or bravery. The film goes on to falsely laud what Burns calls Westmoreland's impressive record, adding that the men he led in Normandy called him Superman. Westmoreland led no men in Normandy. He was by then a division staff officer. And by the way, the division he was in didn't get to Normandy until D plus four and then on Utah Beach. I want to say a word about Burns' advisors on the film. <clears throat> chief advisor, the only one listed chief advisor, was one Thomas Villelli, a member of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. During the latter stages of the war, U.S. forces were progressively withdrawn in 14 increments over three years turning more and more of the combat responsibility over to the South Vietnamese, who, guess what, acquitted themselves valiantly. Yet, Vallely is portrayed in the film characterizing that highly professional sequence. Anti-historically, he says, as we finally came lurching out of Vietnam. It would have been easy, uh, had they decided to do so, to find some good evidence from the other side, the North, the North Vietnamese communists, about how things were going for the South, even when we were withdrawing our forces, and even when we were, subsequent to that, withdrawing our support. For example, North Vietnamese General Tran Van Tra said this, wrote this, by the time of the ceasefire, ceasefire, as you know, was in, uh, pursuant to the Paris Accords in January of 1973. By the time of the ceasefire, said General Tra, our cadres and men were exhausted. All our units were in disarray, and we were suffering from a lack of manpower and a shortage of food and ammunition. So it was hard to stand up under enemy attacks. Sometimes we had to withdraw to let the enemy retake control of the population. I don't remember seeing anything about that in anything Burns had to say. Here's another uh, aspect that, that I haven't seen commented in much of any place else, but, it, but it's what the, the, the fallout long-term consequences that Burns uh, assigns to our experience in Vietnam. In a New York Times op-ed piece entitled Vietnam's unhealed wounds, and with a shared byline, Burns and Novick lecture us on how what they call the troubles that trouble us today are the result of, they claim, seeds sown during the Vietnam War. They catalog those troubles 
as alienation, resentment and cynicism, mistrust of our government and one another, breakdown of civil discourse and civic institutions, conflicts over ethnicity and class, and lack of accountability in powerful institutions. It is apparently their view that had we not been in the, the Vietnam War, those troubles would not be afflicting us today. Someone I uh, uh, failed to note the name of wrote recently that in the production we are discussing here today, Burns somehow missed his chance to tell the true and accurate story of the war. I don't think that is right. I think Burns did exactly what he set out to do, reinforces, I have suggested, with all the might of his vaunted filmmaking skills, the standard anti-war narrative. When we get to the end of this long, sad story, with South Vietnam in the iron grip of its supposed liberators and looming the bloodbath that my Elliot and others cannot see or will not acknowledge, there lies ahead this half century so far of Vietnam as one of the most backward, repressive, and corrupt societies in the world. Burns says nothing of all that. It does not accord with his narrative of choice. And any competent historian, it seems to me, would have found room to emphasize at some crucial points along the way, I suggest beginning, middle, and end, that it was armed aggression by the North Vietnamese that led to all this bloodshed and agony. Burns does not remind us of that, doesn't even mention it. The North Vietnamese aggressors are treated with respect, even admiration. Nowhere is it admitted that the communist way of war deliberately featured bombs in schoolyards and pagodas, murder of school teachers and village officials, kidnapping and impressment of civilians, indiscriminate rocketing of cities. And by the way, the boat people and other emigres now living in America and elsewhere in the free world have with great courage and industry made new lives for themselves and their families. They get no credit from Burns who also does not deign to explain their determination not to live under the repressive communist regime that has seized control of their country. Almost finished. Burns repeats in all the materials he distributes the mantra, there is no single truth in war. But there is such a thing as objective truth, elusive though it may be. What we have here is preferred truth as seen through the Burns prison. Finally, the idea, as suggested by Burns, the idea that, that this deeply flawed version of the war and those who fought it might somehow facilitate reconciliation can only be viewed as fatuous. There is no middle ground, and the Burns film demonstrates, if nothing else, how deep and unbridgeable that divide remains. The Washington Post on a rare good day, in the senatorial 17 September 1996, wrote this, the American role in the Vietnam War, for all its stumbles, was no accident. It arose from the deepest sources, the deepest and most legitimate sources of the American desire to affirm freedom in the world. You would not gather that from the Burns film, and that is how 
he is most profoundly and fundamentally wrong. I thank you.